0: You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's
1: get ready to rumble!
0: Wherever you are,
2: however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, in this episode... It's an epic three-act TKO. Mozart versus Mozart versus Mozart, where the OBS team takes it to the ice to settle once and for all what is the best single act of a Mozart opera. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Jonas takes a timeout. Is he still butt hurt from being fassbendered? <laughs> Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And uh, without further ado, Ashley Hardgrave, you're back on the show.
3: I have missed you guys so much. Hi, friends. Hello, listeners. It is delightful to be here. Um, It is also a really, wow, boy, is it a weird week to be employed by Northwestern. Uh, oh, really? I don't
2: know. <laughs> no, really, yeah.
3: <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the news lately, uh, but yeah, the plot thickened even more today. So Pat Fitzgerald, the head coach who's been there for forever and is also an alum of the program, is out and he's lawyered up. Jim Foster, the baseball coach, has also been fired by President Michael Schill, and the latest news is that eight players have hired civil rights attorney Ben Crump. Yes, the one of all of the civil rights notoriety, we will say, of 2020, to pursue legal action against the Northwestern Football Program for hazing. This feels like a lot of hullabaloo for a coach with a 52% win record over the course of (laughs) his career, but at any rate, uh, it's getting messy. Stay tuned.
0: Only slightly better than a coin flip.
4: I mean... I, we're a family podcast, but um, I would like somebody to explain to me what a car wash is. I, I still can't figure that out. So. Nope, nope,
3: not we can't, on this we podcast. We can't do that without getting
4: marked
0: explicit, <laughs> Oliver. I will also say that I when I read the story about what Jim Foster is accused of having done, I was not sure whether or not um I was just reading a plot summary of A Few Good Men, because <gasps> that also literally is the plot of A Few
4: Good Men. So people really should have learned not to do that by now. That's not
3: great. It's not great. Mm.
4: Well, Weston, welcome to Ashley onto the show, and you've just been listening to the voice of Matt Cummings, and I am here, everybody, too. It's Oliver Camacho. The Uh, gang's all here. Should have started with me, but that's okay. Um, We (laughs) should get to. I have some Wimbledon for people who don't didn't watch the Wimbledon men's. Wow, it was crazy. uh, Yeah, we could talk about it, uh, in the next uh, break. But uh, let's talk some opera, huh? Let's do it.
2: TKO on the OBS. After taking a 14-month break, TKO is back. And let's be honest, with the slower summer news, we could use something to spice up these off-season OBS episodes. So we're going to go with an epic Mozart brawl in three periods uh, with uh, all three of you guys. Oliver, what's this all about?
4: Well, I was thinking about this as I was watching uh, Natalie Stutzmann conduct the Magic Flute having just conducted uh, Don Giovanni, like really in a back-to-back HD blowout. And they were both (laughs) so good. And it just made me think like, what is the best Mozart opera? And can we actually even be more granular? What is the single best act of Mm. a Mozart opera? And we could talk about, you know, um, Clemenza di Tito, Act One. I love that act, but I think it's a snooze fest for a lot of people, you know, is there a, a best act of Lucio Silla? Is there a best act of Il Sogno di Scipone? I'm sure there is, but if we're really going to get down to, like, if you had to, like, put up a Mozart opera act against, you know, Aida Act 3 or up against uh, La Boheme, you know, Act 3, you know. What Carmen would Act be, 2. You're an Act 2, but one person? Of Carmen, I of said. Car- yeah, Carmen Act 2, exactly, yeah. yeah. What is the best Mozart act to represent the genius of this composer? And let's be honest. Local del Cairo. Done. (laughs) 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 So over the course of the next three weeks, uh, Matt, Ashley, and I are going to back an act. And eventually we will have Weston and George be the judge. I know they're the worst I was about to say, like the the, the the most
2: qualified people you could do. I mean, did an opera even exist before the Tristan chord? Yeah. I don't know.
4: Yeah, and we that's know that makes Georgia, fun. Georgia, will be only concerned about transitions and stuff like that. So we'll Whoa, have to... yes, that's <laughs> perfect for me. <laughs> well, let's, so, let's
2: let's start with uh, Ashley. Ashley, well, give us uh, give us uh, the sort of general lowdown of not necessarily the act that you've picked, but the opera you've picked, so we can like dive into the act later. What what is your Case to be made.
3: Well, Weston, I'm going to give you a little bit of both. Uh, and my pick's going to be a little bit controversial as the sole lady of the hosting panel. Uh, I'm going to go with Cozy Fantute, most specifically act one. <laughs> this is, one of this is Cozy very fan much tutte. an only
2: Nixon can go to China moment, I think.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that, that it is. That it is. So, okay, here's the thing it is not exactly the greatest towards ladies uh it is not exactly the most interesting dramatically speaking uh it is but it's got such a beautiful sentimental place in my heart for any number of reasons have i been in this opera more than once yes did i play despina both times yes does that surprise anybody (laughs) absolutely not uh so here's the thing we talk about our friend cozy uh the translation is, okay, first of all, this is my first hill I'll die on. The actual translation is, so do all or everybody's the same. Stop pulling this women are like that crap. That's not actually what it is there. Stop women doing are that. not
0: if- like that. <laughs> women be not shopping. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> women be done with your ish. Okay, so here's the thing. Cozy is a really peculiar piece. Like It doesn't pass any Bechdel tests. And frankly, it's just, it's not great for people of, of my gender and specifics. But... I'll be, here's the thing. I will be fine if I never sit through another production of this again as an audience member. Mm. However, the music is absolutely stunning, both for the singer to perform and for the listener to experience. You know, there aren't that many operas that like, I'll just play around the house for their beauty while I'm doing my dishes. But Cozy mm. is one, most specifically the music of this first act. The trio, the trio, you know what I'm talking about. We'll talk about it when we get there. Uh, it's, it's just, it's good music with On surface level, very little worry. You can go deeper with this. And Act 2 does go a little bit deeper with this. But in the beginning, you're just presented with this beautiful musical landscape. This act is not in the fight in the TKO for its drama or for its verisimilitude or even the vocal prowess that's needed to do this. But you do need it to pull it off well. This Mm. is really here for the sheer, unadulterated beauty of the music and ultimately, don't we all want opera to just be beautiful?
2: Again, you're, you're, you, that's a bold thing to say when I'm one of your judges, Ashley, but, you know. <laughs> you're I, losing I, your uh, judge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe no, i will work on George.
4: I want to keep going in this because uh, as many people know who listen to my other podcast, uh, Così Cosy Tutte is heads and tails like my favorite Mozart opera and my favorite opera of all time. And it's not because you're gonna get canceled um, for that, Oliver. I know, I know. It's because it's like I said, I like the movie Tar. I'm gonna get canceled. So um, we never heard, by the way, Matt Cummings' review of Tar. We still have to do that one day. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, we will. No, but you were talking about vocal prowess. Um, I think, yeah, there are clearly uh operas in the Mozart canon that uh ask for ask more of the singers, especially operas like Abduction from the Seraglio, or even Clemenza, the opera seria. But I think what's amazing about Cozy is that the characters of Fjordaligia and Dorabella, they, it seems like they're socialite women that go to the opera. They go to see opera seria. Mm. And in the first act, especially, they don't know how to express their real feelings. So they rely on opera seria tropes. And there's Despina it's like, what are you looking like, at? You've got to be so dramatic about everything, don't you? You know, like Zmania Implacabili is like a rage aria right out of an opera seria, you know. And Piotr Ligi does it a little bit more in a sophisticated way. She actually uses opera seria vocal tricks to express her rage or to express her uh, depression or to express her um, uh, sense of betrayal. You know, she does all these things in extremes, you know. Um, so it, in a way, it pulls in S- Mozart's writing for opera seria characters. Uh, so we get this mixture of, you know, ostensibly real people and um, high art, you know, that is not uh, has nothing to do with verisimilitude. Ver- I can never say that word, you know? Yes, <laughs> um, yes.
3: Yeah. I. That's one of the things I love about it is that it's very like i said you can go surface and gentle and play it play it for laughs play it for funs play it for beauties you can eventually play it for deeps especially in the second act you can really sort of drill down into you know emotion character the human condition but if we're just talking about like the overall concepts you know okay Mozart he when he's writing this one he gets a business with what I call his usual da ponte collaboration joint so he's got <laughs> these tonal harmonies with some gotcha passing tones he's got just enough counterpoint to keep it interesting but not confusing sonata mm. form this is not uh, each of the six characters especially in act one they have these little moments to shine and as my friend Oliver Camacho pointed out to me salata a lot of fermatas in in this piece, there are <laughs> you said more samata or more fermatas than any other uh, any other opera. Is that what you said?
4: Any, any Mozart opera, yeah, it has the most any... fermatas. Yeah, yeah. Salata <laughs> fermata would be a great drag name. Just putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, yeah, that's no, true. it's 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 him stopping time. Like he wants to explore a feeling. Uh, he wants you to really know what this is about, and also give s- certain. Uh, vocal beauty moments, just a chance to like just breathe, you know. Mm. Yeah. Um,
3: let this let the singer sing.
4: Yeah, and like I I think that has to do with you know the pace of the drama too. Like there are a lot of a lot of things happen in this opera, but it's really all set in one basically in one one set, you know. Like it's it's like in the house of these two sisters. You know, we get the first scene of the first act that's not there but everything else is like set in this one place so it does feel like a reality tv show in a way it's like set <laughs> in like the the villa uh you know the real real housewives of whatever ferrara you know so
3: agreed and one of the other things i love about this besides the sheer beauty is when we think about like practicality not in personality of the characters, but in production. You know, this is really, this is a storefront to a house friendly piece. You can kind of do it anywhere. Mm, yeah, it's the, uh, the classic white button down, if you will, of operas. You can kind of <laughs> do this wherever. You can dress it up, you can dress it down, you can put the chorus in, you could absolutely leave them out. So again, you can do this in a lot of different ways in a lot of different settings. When we look at some of the more, you know, the feature pieces, let's talk about these arias. Oliver, you've mentioned Zemanye. It is arguably the most adorable and the most ridiculous mezzo audition piece out there. Uh, It really lets any mezzo that's doing this for an audition stretch their acting chops and pop out some beautiful, big, forceful high notes. It is, I am, despite my weird, low vocal fry uh, speaking voice, I'm classified as a lyric soprano and I am most jealous that mezzo's get to do's manier it's one of my favorite favorite arias and sometimes i'll sing it just for kicks and just for me uh then we move on to no no go
4: ahead no no i i love that you're going this direction but so you're basically saying the act you're going to choose is act one so why act one over act two Mm.
3: great question oliver act one over act two for me here is again if we're talking about If we're talking about sheer beauty and entertainment, if that is the reason that you want to go to see an opera, this has that in spades. Like I said, you can go deeper into the drama and the action, but it is so incredibly silly. It is so incredibly lighthearted. The music is beautiful, and it's just complicated enough to keep it interesting. It is for singers like a hug to perform. It's just such a wonderful piece. Again, for the theater goer, you know, you can enjoy it some, you can enjoy it a lot. Uh, For singers in particular, they always stay more engaged in this type of piece because you can just, like I said before, let the singer sing and enjoy. So yes, that's why I'm leaning on act one instead of act two. Um, I'll give it a comparison to a musical later that I think will make a bit more sense. Uh, But again, when we're looking at some of these, these solo pieces, we've talked about Zmanier and how it's, Amazing. Then we move on to our sweet little comic relief, Despina. Poor Despina and her and Womany Arya, she's got a lot of thankless music in in this piece, but she is one of the things that dramatically moves things forward and keeps it together. And frankly, she understands men better than anybody else on that stage, John Alfonso included. It is, however, a heck of a way to make an opening scene. You know, like I said, she she really does provide the glue that keeps the ridiculous pieces of this act together. Uh, and then we move into speaking of the opera seria dramatics, our good friend Come Scoglio from Fiorallegi. Mm. Again, it is as equally adorable and ridiculous and beautiful and it gives worthy sopranos and some less so a chance for some <laughs> real vocal fireworks and 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 sturdiness and it is really again, We'll talk about Pier Pietà another day because it is also absolutely stunning. But just on the face of like, we are setting the intention for who all of these people are. Come Scoglio, you know exactly who Fiordaligi is as soon as she finishes those final notes. You know who she's going to be for... At least the next, I don't know, 45 minutes of the opera. Uh, and then we move on to Unaura, which is, you know, my sweet little Ferrando finally gets to sing. We hear from the tenor and it took all the way to the <laughs> end of scene two for us to get there. But we finally hear from him. What I love about this when you mentioned the I hope the warmed uh, seriously he's been that's why he comes in so late because he's been trying to get the gentle high notes to come out uh and so the thing i like about this is that it's you mentioned sort of the the seria and the the dramatics and not quite romanticism onara is back it's gentle it's soft it's simple it's gorgeous and those gentle tenors that don't that have more than the high hook, uh, no. these guys get a chance to shine in this aria, And that's one of the things that I love about it. And mm. if you act it right, you almost believe Ferrando in that moment. Well, I, I do anyway, because I'm a sucker for some soft, gentle, high notes. Um, I want to no, talk a little I mean, bit... I, Go I, ahead. I would,
4: we... We have to move on to because we're, we're actually running out of time. So we're going to pass it off to, to Matt and see what opera he's chosen. But as long as you've mentioned Unaura, in a way, it's the most old fashioned piece in the entire first act, uh, because he is like a sentimental guy, you know, he believes in love and he sings this piece that has a very clear form and, you know, is very elegant, whereas as we said already, like, you know, uh, Despina is singing, uh, she's, she's like, she's the comic relief and Ferdoligi takes herself way too seriously. And Dorabella takes herself way too seriously, you know, <laughs> and it doesn't seem authentic, you know? So it, in a way it's, more, it's the, the first authentic love song and maybe the only authentic love song in the entire, in the entire opera. And that's why I go for act one instead of act two.
2: Uh, let, let, we'll get in more, I think, In in another episode coming up very soon, but let's go ahead and just close out with a a, a clip. What are we going to listen to, Ashley, to encapsulate this for us?
3: Well, I mentioned that trio. I think we know what this is, but in case you don't, uh, my absolute favorite trio from—well, actually, my absolute favorite trio of most operas, uh, is the, uh, act one trio between Fiori Dorabella, and Don Alfonso. Suave ciel vento is what I usually call it, but whatever. Uh, so this recording is going to be, uh, let's see. It's going to be Frederico von Stade, Kiri Takanoa, and Jules Bastan singing Don Alfonso. Any part of this is perfect, Weston. You can just drop the needle, hit play, all of it's a big hug.
2: Thank you so much, Ashley. Uh, let's move on now to Matt Cummings, who's going to bring the heat with his selection to go up against Cosi Fantute. What is the absolute powerhouse of an opera you're going to use to, to take out Cosy?
0: Everyone listening to this podcast, I'm sure, has a very vivid memory of the first time that they tried to explain the plot of *The Marriage of Figaro* <laughs> and found themselves way over their heads. I know I do. <laughs> it's a rite of passage, um, and very few have survived their first attempt. Um, but I think compared to we, I mean. There's kind of a, a trope about opera plots being ridiculous, but I would say that the ratio of plot twistiness to sublimeness ratio of this opera in particular is off the charts. Even ones that have a fraction of the amount of twists as here can reach the absolute levels of like humanity and perfection that we're talking about when we talk about Nozze. It is a well-oiled, like, almost a Rube Goldberg machine where mm. every piece has to be in exactly the right spot for the little pendulum to come hit it into the cup. Um, and it is zany, and it makes a liberal use of coincidence, um, but it remains at its center always a, a piece about humanity and that, that Enlightenment ideal that we always talk about, Mozart e- exemplifying the liberté, egalité, fraternité, and all that. And I think it a trans especially bright in notes because it's a fundamentally optimistic piece. Um, and, but not one without that's without uh like a pretty vicious bite against the aristocracy and those who are not holding up to those ideals. Mm. Um, because what really stands out to me about this opera is that these characters feel like people, they all feel like people. There are definitely formal considerations that are being, ta- that are taken into account here. And sure. The plot itself is Beaumarchais, not Mozart himself. Um, but what really keeps the complexity of this narrative from being overwhelming is that in the heat of the moment, a manageable amount of things are actually happening at once, and the things that happen in their own way make sense. Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm never, like, like you said, uh, Matt, explaining this plot can
0: be confusing, but I'm, I don't think I'm ever really confused when I'm watching not this when, one. Not when you're watching it, it's not confusing. Like, wait, it each bit like comes in its own time it's just yeah. when you're when you're summarizing and you're like oh and also 20 minutes ago there was another letter that that other character <laughs> sent that i forgot to tell you
2: about. I mean, it is an 18th century <laughs> stage work so
0: like you know that's that's just kind of how it goes and with that comes political commentary
5: Ooh. <laughs> you know
0: this is pre-french revolution theater and you can sense that class tension it like if you if you're not watching a very um trenchant production of this it can seem unassuming or cozy but this is daring theater like mm. Mozart is making a statement he's very clearly siding with the lower classes and harshly critiquing the aristocracy and their actions very and best. their like take what you can and like leave the rest for the dogs uh with the way that basically every character is on a team against the count And there are so many characters, (laughs) but each one is really (laughs) crucial and deployed at exactly the right amount. There are no like bit parts who overstay their welcome or principles who like you constantly feel like you have to apologize for. Um, but the op, because the opera is... You mean there's a- no monocytos in this show? <laughs> <laughs> if only. But it's like a little musical jewelry box and it's just chock full of hits. And by the time, even if by the time you get to the finale, you know, you've been sitting for close to four hours and you're maybe ready for it to wrap up a little bit. You're treated to the possibly the most beautiful two minutes of opera with uh, the, the Contessa Perdono sequence where mm. uh, the forgiveness is really laid out on a silver platter and just given to both the count and the audience.
2: I mean, it's all about that forgiveness, right? It's a very sort of enlightenment idea, you know, that like, e- even though there's also this like, you know, class struggle aspect to it, there's always this notion in Mozart operas that you can kind of improve yourself if you only like decide to act rationally and not like a, a big jerk, <laughs> you know? It's kind of a nice message to have, especially, I think
4: it, I feel like it really hits really nicely in this one as well. So what makes... Oh, I mean, you you said that the most beautiful music in maybe all of opera is the two minutes uh, near the very end of the show. Well, does that it's in, mean
0: it's in pretty stark competition with uh, every other minute that comes before it. <laughs> <laughs> but does that mean that
4: Act Four is the best act of a Mozart opera?
0: Act Four is um, Act Four does not have the same kind of balance, like get you a girl who can do both energy that I think Act Two has. Um, it, it it's it's much heavier on the zany and the plot twists than it is on the moments of humanity. Like, uh, just uh, really,
2: really quickly, just for those of us who don't have uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of Marriage of Figaro, where are the bounds of Act
0: Four? Where does Act Four start and where does it end? So Act Four starts with uh, Little Barbarina coming on stage saying, "I lost the pin," and it mm, um okay. it goes until the end. Got gotcha. uh, through through the. Um, the literal labyrinth of a yeah. finale, where characters are swiping at each other in the dark, and it's it's very funny and um, uh, one that maybe George would pick as the most fun act to direct in all of <laughs> opera. Um, but I Real don't play
2: think... plain plain to the judges there, Matt. <laughs>
0: But I, I don't think it lives up to, like, the absolute heights of Act 2. Uh, now, Merit of Figaro is a four-act structure, in, as opposed to the other two De Ponte operas, which are two-act, so Act 2 is, like, a little bit leaner than some of these other supersized choices. Mm. But the whole universe of this opera is contained within those 45-ish minutes. Um, it's magnificently paced, and even the parts... Uh, And every single part of it is serving dramatic purpose, like even the parts that aren't quite as musically memorable are very dramatically important. Mm. Um, And we get that from the very beginning with when the act opens on the countess in bed longing for. The Count's love that hasn't, that has been taken away from her by, by his wandering eye. Um, and this is just such a tonal shift from the antics that wrapped up Act One, you know, the Cosa Cento trio, everyone's running around an armchair and taking turns hiding in it behind it. It ends with like this big send off to Carabino with Non and Dry, That isn't even really much of a send off at all because here he comes in just a few minutes. He's always there. <laughs> um, but just the way that by the time, that or- that long orchestra introduction finishes, and the Countess sings her very first line. You have an idea of who she is. Yeah, those arching lines are so aching for love, and she's so noble. And within seconds, the whole audience is looking at the Count like, "WTF is wrong with you?" Mm. <laughs> it, it it just establishes character and as a baseline, and then goes from those table stakes like again and again and again within this act.
4: And how daring to, you know, put really the principal character. To, for her to not even make an entrance until the second act and what an entrance it is. I mean, you're already talking about poor Jim Moore, but it is, it, like you said, it is, uh, it's exquisite. It's Mozart at his finest. And it's a miniature on top of that. Like it's, it's not even that long, but it tells you everything you need to know about her. Yeah, And there, so
0: there's a lot of preparatory work to get later plot twists under control here. Uh, and this is where I like a lot of the arias mostly live, but even here, um, there's a lot, of, like, the arias are more action-oriented than just embodying an affect or be, like, having a dramatic temper tantrum. There's lots of things that people have to do. They have to write letters. They have to find a disguise.
2: They we all to... know how much you love open letters, Matt, so this is really perfect for you.
0: <laughs> uh, maybe the Achilles heel of my argument. Well, these are closed <laughs> letters. These are directed to one true, person. True, 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 true. Count- and you, you like, get to get a sense of what a normal day without the whole folie de la journée um, of this estate that's the subtitle of marriage of figaro um what it would be like to just be in the countess's employ and like that she's a really great boss actually because she treats you like a person and on top of all of this you're safe from someone's philandering um <laughs> and it just feels very real and it feels very lived in um and the groundwork is set so exquisitely for the second half of the act which is Pretty much all taken up by the 25-ish minute finale to just absolutely take flight.
4: Okay, so you're saying Act 2 over Act 4. Um, just can you give me a little bit of argument? So what are the Act 1 and Act 3? Uh, I mean, I know what the Act 4 weaknesses are. And Act 4 is actually generally cut because you have too many uh, Mario arias in there. But uh, what, what makes Act 2 better than Act 1 and Act 3? Act one is also wonderful, but it's really
0: all exposition, and you don't get you know. the the payoff of that exposition until you get to Act Two. So you're you're reaping the rewards of all of these seeds that have already been sown, uh, with additional layers of conflict, with people, you know, trying to outsmart each other, with people trying to go behind each other's backs, mostly the counts. Um Act Three I also think is great, but the ending is a uh the it's the a finale mark, yeah. Yeah, the the ending is, is it's like a mid, it's a mid the middle episode of a trilogy kind of yeah. an idea. Like it it ends with the the marriage itself and this contra dance, but there are not the same kind of like absolutely satisfying vocal fireworks that I'm partial to. And um, the it it feels very unfinished in a way that Act Two does not. Where a- a- Act Two is much more like it's it's the most complete kernel of of story within Mm. any of these four options.
2: So what do you think is the piece of that act that most exemplifies why I should
0: pick this as the best act of Mozart opera? And the argument for why the Act II finale is a great piece of music goes so far beyond trio quartet becomes quintet, sextet, septet, octet. But (laughs) that, um, that quote from Amadeus is does encapsulate just the absolute genius of this musically, where characters are appearing seemingly out of thin air and just in the nick of time, and they're accompanied by these musical shifts that are so seamless that you don't even see those seams until they're in the re- the rearview mirror like it mm. swings wildly from the di- from different affects to affects but everything feels so natural and the stakes are just constantly being raised where mm. the tension is rising they're almost caught in their trickery so many times but manage to pull it out just in the nick of time uh and that central tension even like reinforces the nature of this ensemble that just keeps rolling down the hill out of control because you're you know the characters are all wondering are we going to be able to get to the finish line before something bad happens and the count is wondering is marcellina going to come in with the contract uh that will nullify their marriage before they out before they make their way out of my trap and so the way that the those two the, the way that that like internal tension of the scene lines up with the audience's experience of wondering what's going to happen next makes it like reinforce itself so well that you almost feel like you're in like like you have skin in the game with these characters and it just never finishes it only keeps transforming into something that's more exciting than the than the bit that you had before And I, I do want to keep some of my powder dry for next week. So I'm not going to go into full specifics. But if there's one moment of this finale that I think exemplifies everything that Mozart is able to do and everything that makes Marriage of Figaro a special piece, uh, it is going to be in this moment of the quartet section of the finale. Uh, and this comes from the Glyndebourne production of Cedar Hall, Sir Peter Hall's production of Marriage of Figaro with Kira Iliana Kotrubash. Uh, Benjamin Luxon and Knut Scrum and the uh, the London Philharmonic Orchestra and John Pritchard conducting. <laughs>
2: You're, you say you're keeping your powder dry, but I believe the central sports metaphor that we've done so far is hockey. So I think it should be ice. But I don't know. And as an Alabamian, I only know about football and I don't know about cold things. So you might be right. Um, I think hockey players must use powder somewhere on their preparation, you know. Probably. Maybe If yeah. you're a hockey player, <laughs> please count us at, at gmail.com and let us know. And it looks like we're running out of time for you, Oliver, but do you have a little teaser for next week of for what you're going to bring to the table?
4: I think we got to keep it mozart DePontes. so uh, that's that's all, all everybody needs to know. The Battle of the Dupontes on yes. Opera
2: Box Score. Uh, let's keep that teaser in mind and talk about tennis updates. <laughs> Oliver, this is the part that everyone tunes in for. What is happening at Wimbledon?
4: You know, last week we talked about how it's an inevitable march for Novak Djokovic and um, Carlos Alcaraz to make it to the final. And that is indeed what happened. And most people were predicting Novak Djokovic to win and to um, tie Margaret Court's record for having the most grand slams. Um, But Carlos Alcaraz actually pulled it out. And it was a very dramatic, almost five-hour-long match. And in the end, Novak Djokovic started to look human. And if, if one mm. good thing can be said about, you know, this rivalry that's now being set up is that it makes Novak Djokovic look beatable. Mm. And, um, yeah, and, you know, Novak Djokovic is sort of like a robot and it's sort of not fun to watch him play because you just see him, you know, use his Terminator... You know (laughs) metrics that he has in his in his uh, in his vision field of vision, like what he needs to do to defeat an opponent, and even when he comes up against a challenge with an opponent, it his game always improves and he figures out a way to beat to beat that opponent. Uh, Like in The Incredibles, uh, with (laughs) all the the, with the machine that kills all the superheroes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So Novak Djokovic is that machine, but uh, yeah, we saw (laughs) we saw him, you know, fail. And that is actually so humanizing for him. And I think... Like when good, Mr. Incredible destroyed that robot. What I'm saying is that <laughs> Novik Djokovic is, is actually a very unlikable... He's one of the most unpopular champions. Um, like
2: Syndrome from The Incredibles.
4: <laughs> and I think people saw him uh, and maybe felt a little sympathy for him. And even in his... Uh, you know, concession speech or whatever, like the the runner up speech that he had to make, he almost cried. He came really, really close to crying, but he stopped himself. But I think he should just let us see that part of him, and I think that will make him more likable. That's my advice to Nole. I used to be a big fan of his when he was new uh, in the in the and tour. wasn't an anti-vaxer. Yeah, <laughs> when Robot's he was just a clown. Vaccines, yeah, so, he used yeah. to do like impersonations of of his peers, and it was sort of funny, and he would you know hike up his his uh, tennis shorts like really high like past his past his stomach you know and like he would just do really silly things on the court and it was enjoyable but then he became like this whatever uh, gluten-free no vaccine you know he wears like this weird patch in the middle of his chest that like has like some electric thing that like sends shocks through his body it's, I don't know, he it's just- called a battery. But sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Like when he takes off his shirt, you see he has this weird like battery pack, yeah, right in, in his sternum. Like he's doing all these weird stuff, and like yeah, and he's so incredible physically and uh, indefatigable, you know. But I think in order for him to become more likable, he need we need to see his weaknesses. So, uh, and then people will cheer for him, and I think that's the missing component. If people were to cheer for him, he might be able to push through an opponent mm-hmm. like Carlos Alcaraz, you know. He needs to learn to feed off the power of human emotions. Yes, yes. if you believe.
2: (laughs) He needs to be forgiven by the countess. Uh, Send us a voice memo (laughs) memo or email us your hot take on opera or tennis at operaboxscoregmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And you won't have to sit through five hours of tennis to do it. Just just two minutes of the two-minute drill. This just in. The two-minute drill. Alright, listen up, here's everything you need to know about what happened in
0: opera Land this week. Kiev's National Opera of Ukraine is marking a full year of productions despite air raid warnings, canceled performances, and other wartime limitations. Artistic director Anatoly Solovyanenko said that the opera remaining open has been important for many patrons. Quote, at one performance, audience members told me that they came to the opera because it was like a portal away from everything going on now, even for
4: just a few hours. Conductor Alberto Veronesi protested a production of La Boheme by blindfolding himself while conducting. Christophe Gayral's concept for the Puccini Warhorse at the Festival Puccini di Torre del Lago updated the setting to depict the Parisian student protests of 1968. The festival called the protest disrespectful to the performers, and some audience members even called Veronesi a clown and imbecile. Giorgio del Gingaro, mayor of Viareggio, joked that maybe the conductor simply wanted to show that he knows the score by heart. The Bayreuth Festival will be
2: departing from the canon in 2026 with a production of Rienzi, according to Intendante and Katarina Wagner. Rienzi was Wagner's first big success as a composer, but he never considered it worthy of his festival. His great-granddaughter disagrees, quote, I'm sure Richard Wagner in his artistic restlessness would have enjoyed Rienzi
0: from today's perspective. Shouldn't she say, I'm sure great-grandpapa or something? (laughs)
2: Grandpapa. First names only.
0: (laughs) On the disabled list, Anita Rachvelishvili has released a statement on social media regarding her recent cancellations and health issues. Quote, I've had very, very difficult last couple of years. My health was getting worse, and I tried to stay strong and keep going for my family, for our little angel, for our opera, and for the love that I have for what I do. I tried hard, but as you know, we cannot force our health. I feel better, and I'm being treated by the
4: best team of doctors, and we'll be back very soon. Jonas Kaufman has canceled his participation in concerts at Aix-en-Provence due to the side effects of a strong cocktail of antibiotics to fight a drug-resistant <laughs> respiratory infection said Kaufman. Although I am very disappointed, I am glad to have finally found the cause of this persistent issue, and now I only have to give my body the necessary rest to cope with this infection.
2: Exit stage right, British composer Anthony Gilbert has died at the age of 88. He was a staunch advocate for new works, even working at music publisher Schott as chief editor of contemporary music. Gilbert also wrote two operas, The Scene Machine and The Chakravaka
0: Bird. A bop. Pianist Margaret Singer has died after a long illness at age 84. A Fulbright scholar, Singer served on the faculties of the diller quayle School of Music, Turtle Bay Music School, and was engaged as a vocal coach at Juilliard. She also served as assistant conductor at both the New York City Opera and San Francisco Opera, as well as a vocal coach for the Maryland program. Among her many roles, she was also a music administrator of the Opera Company of Philadelphia and led the opera department at the Salzburg Mozarteum.
2: Australian soprano Margaret Josephine Nisbet has died at age 94. Nisbet was a leading lady at houses, including Melbourne Opera and London's Sadler's Wells Opera Company, as well as being featured in a series of TV operas with the Australian Broadcasting Company in the 1960s.
4: And on this day, July 17th, not much happened. In 1831, it was the birth of German soprano Therese Tietziens in Hamburg. In 1877, Otto Dessoff conducted the Vienna Philharmonic on its first concert tour to Salzburg, leading to the establishment of the Salzburg Festival. In 1914, American soprano Eleanor Staber was born in Wheeling, West Virginia. In 1927, it was the first performance of Darius Milo's The Rape of Europa in Baden-Baden. Happy birthday to American composer and satirist Peter Shickley, also known as P.D.Q. Bach, born in Ames, Iowa. Happy birthday to American soprano Don Upshaw. And on this day, July 17th, it was the first performance of Aulis Solanen's opera The Horseman at the Seven Lina Opera Festival in 1975.
1: And that's your two-minute drill. <laughs>
4: a little bit of the birthday girl Eleanor Staber from the legendary recording of La Fanchula del West from the Maggio Musicale Fiorentino conducted by Metropolis. That uh, performance of that production came with the story of the uh, donkey that decided to uh, not participate in the dress rehearsal and so they had to find a horse And uh, it was some weird story about the American soprano riding the horse uh, at the Maja Musicale. There's a better telling of that story, but it it does have to do with Eleanor Schieber getting on a horse that didn't rehearse. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. uh, No rehearsal. (laughs) Oh, my
2: goodness. This is this is the kind of uh, jokes we can get away with when uh, George isn't here.
4: But this Uh, is also like shows how... uh, we need to have an ombudsman or something like that or somebody who does like uh, a public editor <laughs> to, to help fact check our, our anecdotes on stories. So, We're just making yes. new anecdotes up but something about owner Staper and a Horse and Majibuzikala Fiorentino it's a story I promise. Put it so. all together it's you know it can be whatever you want it to be. Take out the embezzlement uh, it's fine.
2: <laughs> I think there's a I, I think that of course the most impressive story this week is of course in Kiev where they've been putting on operas for, uh, uh, well, not just operas, but also and ballets, ballets yeah. uh, for uh, a year now, despite the war going on. And this was also the close of their 155th season, too, which probably, which is not like the most, like, you know, round number in terms of historical ones, but it's a big one. I'm sure it feels um, like their 165th. Oh, I bet it does. I bet it does. I mean, e- even now, you know, uh, well past the, you know, initial, like, you know, Shelling and surrounding the city uh, from Russian uh, Russian forces, you know, they still have you know the 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 bunker ready to go. There's there's a legal limit of how many audience members you can have uh, in the house um, because too many won't fit into the bomb shelter underneath the opera. But people still come; they still perform. They still have to um, have
4: like uh, air raid. Warnings, yeah, you know exactly. dur- during rehearsals and stuff like that there, there's so. there's a
2: guardian story um uh that that I read uh, apparently uh so there was there were some concerns earlier on in the war that um they were they're putting on la traviata and uh they were and uh someone i think from the ukrainian you know uh, government said well maybe you shouldn't Put this on because she dies at the end. and That's gonna be a big bummer. It's one of the journalists who was talking to
0: that's Soled right. Bianco, that's right. according and, to this article, yeah. And
2: he said, and he said, uh, no, that's that's silly, you know, because it's you know, it's La Traviata, We can't change verity, yeah. Can't change it. Um, and uh, so they put <laughs> He's on the no
0: ombres, Thomas, with a happy
4: ending <laughs> to Hamlet. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: but they they did they did the they did the show, uh, and they got almost to the end before Latravia before uh, before she dies. Uh, And then an air raid hit and they all had to go hide in the basement. And so for that night only, she lived. So, you know,
5: uh, I just think
2: that's such a a vivid story of wartime uh, art making. And really, you know, it's it's it really is
4: extraordinary that they've been able to keep it going. It would be Um, amazing if if it happened right at that moment in act three when she says, I'm feeling like I'm getting stronger. I'm getting stronger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. Violetta made it, made it that one time, but,
2: uh, you know, that's a, it, I, I really like it, whenever I hear stories about what's going on.
4: So if that's uh, the a, most inspiring story of, yeah. uh, this drill and of, of whatever, of this year, probably, um, where do we rank this story about this conductor? Uh, most, <laughs> most eye rollingest <laughs> story. You know,
2: you know, it's what I always say, you know, Reggie Teatro can't hurt you if you don't look at it. Um, uh, it this is a a bizarre story there's actually a photograph um uh a kind of a blurry photograph of him conducting with the blindfold on someone saw him do it and like pulled out their phone in the middle of the show and was just like what what the heck it's it's so strange to me like i i mean i don't know obviously i don't know the production i don't know exactly how edgy the production was being um but what a rude statement to make about you know the work that everyone's put into your show you know uh i think it's i think it's extremely funny i think it's a uh, very rude and i'm really curious to see the production that could have warranted such a reaction
0: I honestly am mostly proud of the Italian public for taking oh, yeah, this yeah, man yeah. to task although yeah. if I have one note it would be that you're already given all of these wonderful insults to throw at each other so why not go with like pittori da Bottega <laughs> Vipera Ruspo
2: I mean there, there's just hey, something I will say there is something that really hits different about, a, about a, an Italian crowd yelling buffone at you it just it, it's 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 pretty good bizarre story i'm glad that this was a slow news week so this could bubble to the top because i feel like this might be one that like kind of like stayed pretty local but
4: this is this is a a, this is a weird one i don't know what to make about it well i mean in this in this article it's actually a spanish article we're getting this from there's intrigue there uh something about it should be remembered that the stage direct the music director alberto Veronese. um Appeared at the Malone, on the Maloney party list of the last regional elections in Lombardy. Mm. So there's some political intrigue. Yeah. I don't
0: know enough about
2: Lombardy politics.
0: Are you, well, are you telling me... Maloney is the, the kind of neo-fascist prime minister. Okay. So are, are you telling me that fascists have conservative artistic tastes and often use <laughs> that as a Trojan horse? Yeah. To Shocking. smuggle their political agenda into mainstream conversation.
5: Hmm.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll see.
2: I mean, like, I don't know the, po- the specific political leanings of the conductor or the, uh, or the production, uh, artists in general. But, you know, I suspect if I go and learn about local Italian politics, I shall come out with a strong opinion. So let me know what my strong opinion should be. Opera score at gmail.com. I love pandering to my audience. Uh, uh speaking of um you know not pandering things. but communicating
0: not, yeah with communicating <laughs> this yeah.
2: is uh,
4: so this is our latest uh issue of Shvili. watch yeah it's too bad i actually had to step away to go to rehearsal but um yeah i mean roshvelashvili has been canceling a lot uh a this lot. summer and actually since she gave birth to her child how old is her child now? Uh her they posted
0: about it on Facebook like no end of November twenty twenty-one. So like okay. twenty month old at this point, plus or minus,
4: if my yeah. math is right. So I guess like her uh early motherhood has not been easy for her. But we mm. actually don't know. Her message is sort of cryptic and uh it's none of our business. But you know, we do adore Anita Ross really. We we want her to Come on the show and tell us all about it. You know, we have these episodes about motherhood, so I'd, <laughs> I'd love to hear her story. Her husband is super hot, uh, so we'll take him too if he wants to be our uh, inside the huddle. That could guest. be uh, just a, <laughs> an interview just for all of her.
2: Uh, I, I yeah, I, I hope she's doing, uh, she's doing, she seems to be, she says she's doing better. Uh, she says she'll, she wants to talk about a little bit more. Yeah. Um, in the social media
4: post, maybe but, she's uh, got that same uh, prescription that Jonas kopman has got. Like, yeah, you know, maybe special cocktail. It, you know,
2: yeah, it's just uh, you know, it's uh, uh or maybe uh, Jonas. I don't is think just being uh, yelled at
0: by Brigitte Fassbender is what's ailing her. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you you can't you can't treat that with antibiotics, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, another thing you can't treat in antibiotics is um, uh, leaving the canon at Bayreuth. This is a world shattering. Yeah, how are uh, we going to
0: get an exclusive interview with Weston and Katarina Wagner? <laughs> uh, honestly,
2: I would love that interview. I feel like it's going to be the most awkward interview of all time, but I would love that. So this is this is kind of interesting, too, because one, like Rienzi, of course, uh, was Wagner's burst first big hit like it, it was legitimately, uh, you know, extremely popular? It's been called Meyerbeer's best opera. Which exactly, is uh, a and great that's, line. That's probably why Wagner later on was like, maybe not because I have burned all my bridges with Meyerbeer, um, and then some, but, <laughs> and then some. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a long piece, but that's not not a obstacle if you're already going to Bayreuth, you know. Uh, but it's. Uh, it's it's kind of fascinating to me because I always thought that um, the Flying Dutchman should not be part of the canon because it, it feels closer to Rienzi, at least to me, than uh, anything after Dutchman. Um, but uh, you know, I think people are look out there looking for alternatives What's to next, normal programming. <laughs> I know I'm excited for the Def- Defane, uh, uh production. I, I think we're also start you, with Rienzi. You also start to run up against the, you know. Uh, I feel like the the renewed interest in Wagner's early operas have been driven almost by the H.I.P. sort of movement, you know, because the, those feel more like products of their time than uh, than anything Wagner did, you know, after. Right, Dutchman. you're looking for
0: the seeds of what would become his his new idiom, but exactly, you you you
2: see a German, a 19th century German composer doing uh, a, a fairly typical... I mean, Rienzi was pushing the boundaries a little bit, but uh, uh, still, like, everything in there is precedented, right? Um, and I think that people are fascinated by that now in a way they were not, or at least Wagner was not, with his own works, uh, despite the popularity of Rienzi. Um, I also think it's kind of strange, because this this announcement came... Obviously, this is for 2026, and as far as I can tell... This news was broken during an interview with Katarina Wagner, where she was um, basically deploring the use of Wagner's name in the Wagner group, the Russian mercenary group that tried a coup a couple weeks ago. Um, and part of the reason that they're named the Wagner group is because, you know, they were founded in very sort of, um, how we say, schmio sh- schmatzi sort of circumstances. <laughs> uh, and so she was, uh, it's, it's an interesting, it seemed to be an interesting logical leap from how do I distance, uh, you know, Wagner's name once again from the, the Nazi question. Um, and her answer was like, go back to Rienzi. I just think psychologically, that's a fascinating thing. I, 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 I'm not entirely sure because I'm like reading between the lines. I can only find one article in German about this. And for all I know, this was something that was in the works for a long time. But I, uh, you know, once again, Katharina Wagner, if you want to come on our show so I can ask you these hard-hitting questions about Rienzi, please, please do. And uh, I just want to know, uh, is, is Richard Wagner really turning in his grave? Let's find out uh, what other things might be making us turn in our graves with Good Call, Bad Call. Good Call, Bad Call, on Opera Box School. That's right. It's Good Call, Bad Call, how we end the show around these parts. Oliver Camacho, what do you have for me? Well, I have
4: both a Good Call and a Bad Call that's related to the same uh, person, and that would be Sparkle Jams herself, Tracy Cox, uh, who, I'll start with the bad call, uh, posted one, uh, posted a story, I guess it was last week at this point that was very, very uh, hard to get through its infuriating experience that she had with her partner uh, and Southwest Airlines. So as you know, Tracy Cox is a, uh, a fat advocate or a large mm. person advocate. I don't know how to, I don't know what the terminology is yet. I'm gonna mess it up and I'm sorry. But, um, you know, she's very pro body and she, um, you know, made a reservation on, or bought uh, tickets to fly on Southwest Airlines with her partner. And Southwest Airlines has this accommodation that they have for larger people where you can reserve the second seat next to you so that mm-hmm. you don't infringe upon somebody's space. So they went through that process and made sure that they had uh, appropriate space on the on the flight. And I guess like the operations person came on the plane and asked her partner to like move because they needed to seat somebody in that seat. And, you know, it just became this really Mm. awkward, uncomfortable thing where um, her partner was just completely embarrassed and shamed in front of all the other passengers for Mm -hmm. being a large person. And so she tells this story on her Instagram. So if you follow her, you probably saw this. It was really, really upsetting. And of course, it got shared by her. I don't know how many followers she has, thousands, you know, because we love her. Um, So that more people know about this indignity that sometimes people have to experience just for being themselves. They didn't do anything wrong. And they tried to do the right thing on top of that. The good call is that... uh, Tracy Cox, uh, announced today that she is engaged to her partner, which is Aww. so wonderful. So congratulations to uh, Tracy and that's Rachel. Wonderful. Uh, that's good news, and we, uh, we're we very happy for you. Mad Cummings. Got some
0: congratulations to join on to. Uh, mine go out to our many friends of the show who got some love from Opera America in their round of Next Stage Grants program that was announced this week. Uh, that list includes Wong Roe for Chicago Opera Theater's Book of Mountains and Seas, David T. Little and Royce Vavrek for and Sport at Opera Parallel, Jorge Martin and Dolores Koch for Friend of the Show's Opera Southwest Before Night Falls, Paul Morovic and Friend of the Show Mark Campbell for Virginia Opera Sanctuary Road. Uh, other winners who are not yet friends of the show, but we're working on it, uh, include <laughs> William Grant Still and... For an Rv for LA Opera's Highway One USA, and Janine Tazori and Taswell Thompson for the ever-present blue at New Orleans Opera. Congratulations!
2: I mean, this is what I always say. You know, being a guest on Opera Box Score really pays off. So, Katrina Wagner, grants galore. if you're trying to, if you're trying to, like, you know, pay for a little bit extra on the next uh, Bayreuth season, you know, come on over. I have a good call uh, since George isn't here. Go out and if you can, check out Verdi's Attila with opera festival chicago it will be on the day this podcast drops thursday and uh sunday as well with our very own george cedarquist directing kind of at the last minute too so definitely check that out and uh hopefully won't be too mad at me for promoting his work
0: i know a double george uh no george here to stop you from doing a good call about george That's true. (laughs) I've really outplayed him this time. That is
2: it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. That's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on our donate page. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. The creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. For co-hosts Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm host and audio editor Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you begrudgingly admit Rienzi into your festival season. We're back with an all-new show next week when we find out which opera Oliver puts in the ring with Figaro and Cosi. Will it be Act Two of Apollo and Hyacinth? Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more Fermatas. Join us.